welcome to the Press Forward podcast. I'm Nathan Wrigley, and I'd like to thank you again for joining us. And if this is your first time with us, I hope that you like it, and that you find it useful. We release the Press Forward podcast each week, and we'd love it if you added us to your list of podcasts, the ones that you consume regularly. You can do that by subscribing to us on your favourite podcast player. This is done simply by searching for WP and Up. Today, we're going to be talking to Paul Lander. But before that, let me tell you a little bit about what WP and Up are, what we do, and how you can get involved. We're a registered charity with a mission to support and promote positive mental health within the WordPress community. Join more than 4,200 community members taking the next steps towards better mental health. Connect with our team to discover your best personal journey. Build companionship. Connect with professionals and develop skills to cope. You can find out more and become a member today for free at wpnup.org forward slash join. WPNUP deliver free to end user support. To provide tens of thousands of hours of support, we do need your help. It costs more than a quarter of a million pounds annually to fund WPNUP. This is made possible by your donations, and you can do that by visiting wpnup.org forward slash donate, and this will ensure that we can continue to meet the needs of our community. We'd like to offer a shout out to some of our sponsors. So, Automatic, Get Dolly, Funnel Packs, Weeglot, Winning WP, WPMU Dev, Yoast, we appreciate you helping us. If you'd like to share this message, please use this pre written tweet, which you can find at bit.ly forward slash WPNUP dash thanks. Thank you. So today we speak with Paul Lander. He's a WordPress website builder and agency owner, and has a remarkable story to tell. Paul has been through a lot in the last few years, and he lays it all out for us today. It's a story of incident heaped upon incident. It's a story of keeping going in the face of enormous adversity, and ultimately, It's a story about a family who managed to get through the most difficult of times. It's all in here. Worries about his business, concerns about money, relationships, family crisis, everything. Not knowing what the future might hold and having to react again and again to emergencies which cropped up with no warning. It's remarkable that Paul is able to tell this tale at all, but tell it he does. And by the end of it all, a lovely ending. And so, without further ado, here's Paul Lander. I'm Paul Lander. I'm from Wolverhampton, sunny Wolverhampton, the heart of the black country. And I own uh, Zecro Web Solutions. And more recently, we set up a couple of years ago, my web pal. So Zecro Web Solutions, we deal with kind of the, I don't really like to say the more high-end client, but anyone who's got a budget of £3,000 upwards. And we now exclusively work with um, WordPress so we used to do literally, you name it, anything, Magento, Joomla, CMS1, CMS Made Simple, Datic Sites, and everything in between. I started in, two, it was about 2000, I'd say 2011, properly. 2010 was kind of like the, the leading. But yeah, so we've got Zecro Web Solutions. Our offices uh, have got a lovely view. It's nice and sunny today. And um, we've set up My Web Pal as well, which it's kind of a different pricing aimed at a different set of clients. So our prices start from £799 setup fee and £79 a month. And it gives people a chance to have something that looks really great so they can have up to 11 pages and a blog. And we throw in for the first 12 months, free hosting, free email, an SSL certificate, security, backups, you name it. Everything in the kitchen sinks thrown at it. So it gives small businesses a chance to compete with their larger counterparts, but not for a lot of money. So we use things like frameworks, generate press, be for builder, loads of different things to help speed up the process and make sites cheaper for SMEs. 
So Paul started off using a variety of different solutions and technologies to create websites, and I'm sure that this is the case for many of you too. I asked Paul what it was about WordPress that made him go all in with it and use it exclusively for his business. It was, well, it was my decision really. In the company, there's me and my wife and we work with a couple of family members. And uh, so we're a small family business. And we had, like most people do, a number of outsourcers or freelancers, subcontractors, whatever you want to call them. And we kept getting asked to do all kinds of stuff. So it was a lot of Joomla, OS Commerce, a bit of WordPress thrown in. And one day I thought, you know what? We're spreading ourselves too thin. I just want to focus on one thing. And and we looked at WordPress about five, six years ago. We thought, do you know what? I think this is the way to go. There's some real great advancements. We had some excellent developer license plugins, which just extended the functionality. And it, and it was easy to use. There wasn't much we couldn't do with WordPress. And we could set our own templates up. We could use the ever extensive range of frameworks available. Everything just seemed to point in that direction. And slowly, slowly, we, we cut stuff out and life became easier because then we could concentrate solely on offering WordPress. It just meant standard operating procedures could be standard instead of procedures for everything and anything, and then people would forget them. It meant that we could then control what plugins we used. We could control a hell of a lot of stuff. It made things like doing on-site SEO easier as well. It also meant the learning curve for clients to use it was quite shallow because there are literally, well, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of videos on how to use WordPress. It meant that training time was radically reduced. We found that we were spending, wasting a lot of time with clients. They'd come in and see us or we'd do an hour with them over uh, video conferencing. And 10 minutes after the training finished, they'd forget everything. <laughs> and we would get phone calls. Oh, can you just tell us how to uh, do a blog? How do we change the image on the About Us page? How do we change where the email from the Contact Us form goes to? How do we do this? How do we do that? And we thought, you know what, we covered this in training. So then we replaced all of the training with video. So we will use video user manuals, which is great. It's perfect. We install it as a plugin onto client sites. There you go all the trainings through there, everything they could ever want. It just made sense to use it. Cut our training time down by oh, just unquantified. It just means that everything that we do with clients now, we say to them, all the training is provided by, by videos because it's WordPress and there's hundreds of thousands of them out there. But we also give you a whole heap of them in your admin area that you can access 24 hours a day. So we've got to know a little bit more about Paul his business and his relationship with WordPress. This podcast, however, is now going to change gears and focus upon something else. A series of events going back a decade or more in which Paul faced adversity. But Paul wanted first to make a few things clear. Before we start, one of the things that I don't want people to do is to think, oh, my God, I feel so sorry for him. It's not for me. It's not a, a pity thing for me. It's hopefully showing that things can go wrong, but you can get through them and things could have gone so much worse, so much worse. So I don't want people to think, oh, he's doing this to get pity. Absolutely not. I don't want anyone to say, oh, I feel really sorry for you, because without all this stuff happening, I wouldn't be here where I am today. So, yeah. But, yeah, it did. It started all in 2008. So life up until 2008 was great. N nothing had happened, really. It was just the normal things of working, coming home, buying a house, getting married. And it was great. It wasn't until about 2008 when my daughter came along. So to set the scene, me and my wife had had our house for about a year. And we'd been married for about a year as well. So my wife was pregnant and we did all the things that a couple do when when they're expecting a baby. I remember it literally as, as clear as day, as clear as it was yesterday. So I was on the M6. I was just about to come on the M54. And I got a phone call from my wife to say that her waters are broken. And I said, well, they can't be because you're too early. Baby's not due for four weeks. 
I said, well, regardless, he says, my waters have broken. Are you able to get home? So I put my foot down on the, on the car and it was like the paint was melting off the bonnet. <laughs> and I got home in a bag, five minutes, uh, picked her up. And it was all very much a kind of excitement, a little bit of worry. And so I had to take, we had to go to the hospital. So I just chucked stuff in a bag, different kinds of things. Um, my wife said, I'll put some underwear in. So I did. And so we went to the hospital and we got there and everyone was nice and calm and said, it's all right, you are four weeks early, but it's all good. So we were there and it was, it was all okay. And it, we, we were just sitting there waiting and they said, look, she's not going to come at the moment. We'd been there for a number of hours. She's not going to come at the moment, go home and then come back when contractions start. So we went home and literally within a few hours, we were back in the hospital because the contractions had started coming more frequently. So again, we went back to the hospital with this, the same bag and everything. And we were there, we were just waiting and we were just sitting around and waiting for the natural things to happen. So we then got taken into the labor suite and I pulled, we'd pulled parents and told them what was happening in the family. So I was there, my wife was giving birth. I was holding a hand all the way through it. It was absolutely fantastic. And it, it's an experience I'll never forget. Absolutely beautiful experience. My wife didn't at the time didn't think it was beautiful. She was on gas and air and everything. It was, but she handled it really great and it was quite quick. So it was about, I'd say, it was about three, four o'clock in the morning, and we were in the room and we'd given birth. And I was holding Isabel. I remember holding her, and her head. If you imagine the tip of your fingers, her head was there, and her feet were just past my wrist where you'd have a watch strap, just past there. So she wasn't very big. She was about four pounds in total. She was really, really small. And as I was looking at her, she had these bubbles coming out of her mouth. And I looked at the nurse and I said to the nurse, I went, look, is that pointed to her? I said, look, is that normal? And the nurse goes, oh, let me just take a quick look. So the nurse grabs her out at my arms and then literally runs out the door with her. And so we're going, what the hell's going on? So a nurse comes back saying, look, we're just, we're just having a look at her. We're just going to, doctor's going to assess her and, and everything's fine. Everything's fine. A couple of minutes go by, about five, six minutes. And they've got Isabel in like a, a little trolley that it looks like a, an incubator box. And they say to us, right, there is a little problem with Isabel. We've got to do a bit of an operation and words that I'll never forget. And they said, right, prepare for the worst. And at that point, it was it literally it takes me back to sitting there and it was it's like the world has opened up and he's, he's swallowing you it's difficult to put into words the, the emotions that were, were running through me and my wife at the time were just uh, our minds were racing with the worst things that could happen that she could die that she could something happen it was just horrible so they take her away and they said look we've got to do an operation on her and uh, we've got to do num pneumothorax so she's got a collapsed lung and, and we've got to to fix that but it's a very delicate operation and so you need to be prepared for the worst and it was oh. they'd taken isabel away and we were kind of in a little bit of, of limbo for about it was about three four hours and then they came back and my wife was we were both in tears and we didn't know what to do and we had family there who worried as well and they came back about three four hours and said just to let you know we've done the operation we've done everything and um isabel is fine it, it was a it was a complete success and at that point we it was like oh it was again more emotions came through and we cried again and it was just never felt anything like it before never been through anything like it before and it was just uh, awful and fantastic at the same time so that was the start of the journey with Isabel because we then spent about four weeks in hospital as I said I remember it like it was yesterday because we'd see her in in this kind of like perspex box which was there for her protection as well because she, she was susceptible to germs and diseases and stuff. And she had all these tubes attached to her body and feeding tube through her nose and another tube in her mouth and all these tubes going through. So when we first saw it, it was like, oh, my God. To us, it, it just looked horrendous. But she was there. She was alive and she was safe. 
And in the four weeks, we kind of, we didn't leave her bedside, really. There was either me or my wife there with her all the time. And I remember it was, <laughs> it was three days in and my wife turned around to me. She said, you need to go home. I went, I'm not going anywhere. She said, no, no, you need to go home to have a shower. She said, um, she says, you really need a shower now. And I was like, and it didn't even enter my head. So I then went home after three days, knowing that kind of Isabel was stable. My wife was stable as well. So I went home and had a shower. And I remember getting home and I broke down at home. I absolutely just got into the house. And I remember I broke down completely through, I think there, there was extreme exhaustion emotions all running through i was just brilliant for half an hour i was just no good to anyone so but then i had a shower and i was straight back to the hospital smelling nice and fresh so then i went in and then i sat with isabel my wife and then went for a shower then she came back and we're all refreshed and we just took a minute to look okay this has happened to isabel and us but we've just got to get through we've got to be strong for isabel and i remember through those four weeks she was tiny she was so tiny it wasn't true and there was one point I felt really, really guilty. And my wife did as well. And I said this to my wife. I said, look, I feel really guilty. I said, things could have been so much worse. Things could have been so much worse. We looked around us and we were in the neonatal unit at New Cross Hospital in Wolverhampton. And we looked around us and there were smaller babies in there with a hell of a lot more wrong with them than Isabel. And I felt guilty that I thought it could have been so much worse. I'm so glad we weren't one of those. And I think that's just natural that people tend to think like that. And if there was one baby I remember that was just a pound in weight. And it was the tiniest thing. Literally, it was just tiny, but it was surviving. They did such a fantastic job at the neonatal unit in at New Cross. They just were amazing. Couldn't thank them enough. Next to us, born on the same day, was a young couple as well uh, with their son. And their son, literally almost identical to Isabel. So we were in kind of like cubicles next to each other. And it was nice to hear another parent's viewpoint. And in fact, we're still friends with this couple to this day, um, which is which is really nice. And their son as well is flourishing also. So I remember as well, whilst we were in hospital changing, I was the first one out of me and my wife to change Isabel's nappy. And it was a micro nappy and a micro nappy was big on her. And I just felt like as I was grabbing her legs to clean her with this, there was a little bowl of water and little bits of cotton wool, cotton balls to clean her. And I felt like I was going to break her. She was I just the nurse said to me, she said, no, look, you're not going to break her. She's got to be kind of very confident and you're not going to break it i said i'm going to feel like i'm going to break her legs i was really panicking and my wife said as i was doing it she said she could see the sweat dripping from my head as i cleaned her it's like oh done i got the first one out of it but we did that on a regular basis and and then before they let you go home they put you they've got a room there with a bed so that you can spend a night on your own with your baby so you know what to do so we did that and then eventually uh, we got home and it was the slowest, the longest car journey home because I took the route that I knew had no speed bumps, had no potholes, and I probably went about five miles per hour all the way home. It was, it was just surreal. And we got home knowing that Isabel's had a lot of care and attention. Her, her journey still wasn't over. And we sat her down. She was in her car chair. She was asleep. Meanwhile, I sat on the sofa and we thought, what, what the hell do we do now? We <laughs> we're on our own but then she started getting stronger to put in perspective in terms of feeding and how stressful it was isabel we'd use these dr brown's bottles and isabel would eat maybe one ounce of feed which is nothing and we had to feed her every two hours and that was for at least seven eight months Every two hours throughout the night, it was just, I remember the first year was total, total exhaustion. But I think we, we did, we loved it. At the 12 month mark, we were kind of like, okay, great. We're properly out of the woods. So Paul got through this trying time. And although they were exhausted, they felt that they were out of the woods. But it turned out that this was not the case. 
in 2009, I went self-employed. And, and believe it or not, before I got into web design and everything, I was a financial advisor. <laughs> and I was, at this point, I was an IFA, an independent financial advisor. I'd been working for a company and I thought I decided in 2009 I was going to go self-employed. So that's what I did. I started my own company up as a financial advisor. And I did that for a couple of years up until 2011. I wasn't enjoying it. It was full of red tape. I loved the client side of it. I loved dealing with clients, speaking to them, helping them, being able to recommend investments to them. I just hated all of the red tape. And my wife said, look, you either need to put up or shut up, or you need to do something about it. She said, why don't you do something with um, IT and, and websites and stuff? That's what you went to uni for. I said, well, I could. I said, but what am I going to do? She said, well, why don't you sell websites? And that was it. I packed up being a, an IFA. I was at that point, I, I am still, uh, have got all the qualifications to be an IFA today. I think it was a couple of exams away from being chartered. But I really loved tech and web and all sorts of geeky stuff. I was a geek at heart. I still am. So in 2011, I, I started up what was then Zecro Designs. Uh, Zecro Designs, well, the word Zecro was a word I made up when I was about four years old playing with Lego made this thing and called it a Zecro, but that's that's a, another story. So um, I, I started that off in 2011 and it was great. I did like everyone did. I took any and every project that was going, regardless of what it was, how much it was. I just wanted, I needed projects under my belt. That was ongoing. But between 2009 and 2012, I did get into a lot of debt. I was still carrying a debt from uni. And I got into a lot of debt through some really bad business decisions. It was very wet behind the ears when it came to getting into business. I had some business coaches as well. That unfortunately, all they wanted to do was take my money. Not that every business coach does. And there are some really good ones out there. But I ended up with some that just ended up taking some money. It was bad business decision on my part. Plus, I had a partnership that went south as well. That left me with a hell of a lot of debt. So... I had all this debt and I was hiding my debt from everyone. I was hiding it from my wife. I was paying credit card off with credit card, paying a loan off with another loan and trying to make everything work. And there wasn't enough business coming in. There was nowhere near enough business coming in to cover everything. And it was, it was going to reach a point where I couldn't do anything more about it. So in between this time, after I had a career change, my wife was pregnant again, which was great. And um, she was very, very wary about getting pregnant again because the birth as well was, was a difficult one. And she was also blaming herself for what happened to Isabel, which was absolutely not her fault at all. She couldn't have done anything about that. It was what it was. So my son came along. Oh, I, I forgot to say, in the first bag that I packed, I remember my wife opened it. And she said, I thought I told you to put some pants in. I did. I put some underwear in. But the pants that I'd put in and the, under, the bra and underwear I put in were like these freely kind. I just want to put that in because it's going to be relevant to what I say next. When I did go home the first time with Isabel, I had to take the bag back and repack it with a list of stuff that she put down. Uh, when my wife was pregnant with our son, Josh, we had the bag ready two months in advance with all the right stuff. There was no freely stuff. It was all practical underwear, practical uh, pyjamas, toothbrushes, toothpaste, all the practical stuff that you need. He came two weeks early in 2011. And when he was born, again, everything was great. It was a very difficult birth. Unfortunately, my wife had to have an operation because she'd had a, a third degree tear. So they had to, as soon as she, he was born, she saw him for probably a minute and they took her to do an operation on her and then I was holding him and whilst I was holding him the nurse says oh can I just take a quick look and literally she whisks him off and I'm thinking oh my god what the hell I thought oh there can't be anything wrong with him surely not surely absolutely not she came back and she says he's a little bit jaundice so we've got to put him under the lights and I thought oh okay we can deal with a bit of jaundice. That's fine. So he was fine. And then my wife came out for, of her operation and she was good. But we spent two weeks in hospital because of these 
different complications. One of the things that they did notice at the hospital was that Josh wasn't moving his right side. So his right side looked, from all intents and purposes, looked paralysed. And we were really, this stressed us out. We, we were happy that he was there, but it was like they had a look at him. And for the first 12 months, he had to have physio. So we had to do physio with him at home. A physio came out to see us, but they said they didn't know if it was permanent or if it was nerve damage or if it's going to repair itself or if to intervene. So again, something happened and we were like, oh, we were just, again, another run of emotions. But then it came out that it wasn't permanent. He needed just some physio and he got all of his movement back in his on his right side of the body through his right arm and his right leg which was great he's, he's now a lefty I think that forced him to be a lefty because for a long period he was very left hand dominant but that did then eventually with physio sort itself out then we fast forward to March 2012 and my daughter was ill we took her to the GP referred us to the hospital we got to the hospital and they didn't really know what was wrong with her to start. They said, look, there's something, we think it's quite serious. Um, they admitted her, they did all these checks and scans and blood tests. And again, another roller coaster of emotions going through our brains. And then they came back and then she had said she had scarlet fever. We thought scarlet fever was kind of something like the 18th, 19th century. We said we thought it was an old kind of thing to have they said no no absolutely it still happens today so she had scarlet fever and she was in hospital for three weeks again we were on edge every day from what she'd been through when she was born it brought all those emotions back up and it wasn't until we left hospital we then kind of thought okay and with all these moments i am really good when it comes to a crisis I think very, very clearly, and I don't let anything phase me until after it's happened. So two, three days, four days after something's happened, that's when I'll kind of have a bit of a, a mental breakdown. And my, my wife will know this. She says she, when it comes to an emergency, I'm on point. But then it will hit me or I'll let it hit me once I know everything's done and out of danger. So then... Um, Isabel's back home. Everything's fine. Then in the April of that year, I think it was a month after, towards the end of the month, I think it was, my wife's been having, over the past like four or five weeks, she's been having a really bad upset stomach, acid reflux and all different kinds of things. So we've gone to the, the doctors. They've given her some tablets for acid, acid reflux, and but it's got worse and worse and worse to a point where I then had to take her into hospital. So we're in the waiting room hospital. They initially saw her and they said, look, it could be you've got gallstones. Could be some gallstones. Here's some medication. We'll send you for We'll send a letter out for a scan. And when we got home the next day, it was getting worse and worse and worse. So what um, I'd done when Isabel was born, I'd got us some private medical insurance. I'd set up a private medical insurance plan for us. And I said to my wife, right, we'll ask the private medical if, it, if it's covered under private. And if it is, we'll take you to have a scan at the uh, Nuffield Hospital down the road from us. And the private medical insurance, they were fantastic. I don't mind giving them a shout out. It was WPA, Western Provident Association. They were amazing. They were absolutely amazing because I said, what do I need to fill out? I said, look, there's one form you've got to sign and give it to rece the reception at the private hospital. That was it. That was literally it. So I did that. We went to the, to see what we thought was kind of like a GP at the private medical hospital. And we sat down there with the, it was the consultant. It was very nice. He explained what he was going to do. He said, look, we're going to do a scan. And we went in to have a scan. And, it, and I said, oh, are we able to ask the, the guy who's doing the scan questions? He says, well, I'm doing the scan. I went, oh, okay. So he did the scan, the consultant. And he looked at the scan. And it's one of those that it's the I think, ultrasound. And he said to my wife, he said, Islander, he said, we've got to admit you. And we're like, why? He says, well, he says, we can't let you go. He says, it looks like your gallbladder could burst at any moment. And he said, if it does burst, he says, you will more than likely die. He said, uh, and that just was like, okay. That frightened the life out of me, that did. He said, I can see, he says, it is gallstones. He says, imagine a little bag of grit. He says, but it's really inflamed. 
and we need to take it out today. So they admitted her. She got settled in. She had the operation. And that was that. He did say to her, he said, right, if you'd have waited for the letter just for the scan, he said, this would have more than likely burst. And he said, and you'd have probably died. Oh, yeah, it was the years of payment on this private medical insurance. It was worth every single penny. We're still in the black. The amount that it cost, the bill, they showed us the bill because she was in there for three days, the consultant, the anaesthetist, the, all the other things, the nurse and so on. It came up to about 13 grand. And if I'd have had to pay that, I'd have found some money from somewhere. I said to her, I would have taken a loan. I would have done anything. I said, but luckily we didn't have to. And we're still in the black to this day. She was, she wanted to stay in the hospital. It was kind of, they'd come in and say, oh, Mrs. Lander, would you like some, something to eat? Would you like a drink? Would you like this? Would you like that? She, she didn't want to leave, but she had to three days later. But it was, yeah, just a really routine. It was keyhole surgery. She's got a tiny scar from it. And he showed us the gallstones and there were absolutely loads. There must have been 20, 30 gallstones. And it was like grit. Um, so he said, look, he said there were actually in fact more than we could see on the scan. So she came out. She couldn't really pick up the kids for about four or five weeks to properly get back to a normal self. It, it took a good three, three to six months. And then she was she was properly back to herself. Then, however, it has affected things like watching what she eats and different stuff like that. But she lives with it, and it's it's fine. She's okay now. So many deeply worrying events happening in rapid succession. It must have felt like there was bound to be a period of calm, of normality to come. Now, I thought to myself, "We've had a lot now. We've had a lot. Nothing can be worse than this. No, it can't." But well, boy, was I wrong. <laughs> September 2012, financial disaster hit me. And I'd, all this debt that I was hiding came to the surface. There were no longer credit cards that I could get. I was getting declined for everything. My credit record at this point was awful. And I had to have uh, what we call an IVA an individual voluntary arrangement. So most people know what bankruptcy is. Think of one step above bankruptcy. So bankruptcy, you would lose your house. I was really, I was just so frightened of losing the house. So frightened of losing the house. But before this, as I said, I'd, I'd hid the debt from everyone. I had to come clean to my wife. I was so, so nervous. The stress and the pressure that being in massive financial debt that puts onto your shoulders is crippling, crushes your soul, especially when you think there is no way out. And especially, I can't express how much embarrassment goes with it. You feel very, very embarrassed for you, yourself that you've got into this situation and you don't want anyone to know. You don't want anyone to know because you don't want them to you don't want to know what they want to think about you. A lot of the feelings are selfish. They are. They are. If I look back at it now, they are selfish because you're feeling about it's about you. It's about what other people are going to think about you, what other people are going to say about you. And it should be right. I don't care what people say about me. I don't care what people think about me. I just need to fix this problem. So I had to tell my wife. And that was the scariest thing I'd done scariest thing because I thought what if she decides to leave me what if she takes the kids what if she does this what if she does that and I remember it and my wife turned to me she says don't worry we'll sort it out together at that moment it was the relief again I felt was just oh, I thought I can't believe it I, I thought I, I, I kind of knew in my heart that she'd stick with me I knew it um, but when she said it and she put her arms around me, it was I, I broke down. I did. I really was in tears. And it was it was just a, such a nice relief to have shared this problem with someone and to know that she had my back. Such a nice relief. And then I went through the processes of, of finding a good insolvency company. They were great. I don't mind saying who they are. They were clear debt. They were excellent their communication was excellent they dealt with everything they did what we call a full and final iva so that meant i had to 
scramble together, beg, borrow and steal from family and to put a an amount to my creditors to say, right, this is all I've got left. Do you want to accept this amount of money? And the advice that I got from Credit was fantastic. I think they got something like it was to pay back the debt was like 7p in the pound. What worked well for me was that we were in a financial crisis in the country and the creditors, they took the offer from clear debt, which meant it cleared everything. So from at that point, it was something I think it got finalized in the December. And when it got finalized, I had the best night's sleep ever because they wrote out to me. They said, look, this has been completely finalized. Everything's been cleared and wiped off with the amount of money that you've said you're offering them. That's the end of it. And I knew at that point my credit rating for the next six years was going to be awful, was going to be no one would lend money to me, overdraft any. I knew this. I absolutely knew this. Um, It was an absolutely great feeling. It was a fantastic feeling because I'd gone through an IVA. There was no chance of losing the house. There was no chance of losing that. If you go bankrupt, then more than likely your house is gone. So clear debt, did all the paperwork, did everything. And I'm glad I used those because there was another insolvency company that I'd approached who quoted me a hell of a lot more to pay back. They were saying, right, the companies won't accept less than 50p in the pound and our fees are seven grand on top. And it was just, whoa. So if anyone's having to go, listening to this and having to go through an IVA, you've got to do your research and choose a company that are going to help you instead of help themselves. That was it. It was done. There was a whole burden lifted off my shoulders and life was going to looking rosy. For two years, it was. It was great. I'd been earning loads of money. I'd not been in any debt and it was great. Then July 2014 came along and I get a call from my wife saying, right, I met the GPs. They've told us not to wait for the ambulance. We've got to take Josh into hospital, my son. We've got to take him into hospital. How far are you away? I said, I'm literally around the corner. So went straight to the GPs, picked them up, and we went to the to the hospital. And looking at my son now, he was the colour of him was white. He looked like Patsburg the ghost. <laughs> and we were going to hospital, and my wife said the GP doesn't know what's wrong with him just to get him there and to give you an indication if you do take your kids to the hospital there's the waiting area where they see you in triage and they do an assessment we got there they whisked us right through triage and that tells us that there's something seriously wrong he was seen ahead of everyone there's probably another eight kids in there we were literally just taken straight through straight past triage into a room and at that point, I knew there was there was something seriously wrong. And they came in straight away. They gave him gas and air. They did some tried to take some blood from him, and it was they had to try a few times. And they said, "Look, he needs an emergency blood transfusion." And at the time, he was I think he was, he was three years old. And imagine a three year old having a blood transfusion. This bag of blood was literally almost the size of his body. That's how much blood he had to have. And in total, he had three of them. So they did some tests on his original blood. They took as much as they could. And they came back and they said, we don't know what it is. We don't know what he's got. We have a feeling it could be uh, leukemia. It could be sickle cell. It could be. Then they reeled off five or six things, which were the worst things as a parent you want to hear in medical science. It was just heartbreaking. It was absolutely heartbreaking. And then he was having a lie down, having a sleep. The doctor spoke to us and said, look, uh, we don't know what it is. You need to prepare for the worst. And my heart, <laughs> sorry, it just takes me. We were taken right back to when Isabel, it happened to Isabel. All the feelings came back, all of them. And it felt 10 times worse. I remember when they first said all the things that were going wrong. My wife was in the same room as me, my son. She she had to leave because she broke down there. And it's words no parent wants to hear. No parent wants to hear at all. And there's nothing you can do. You feel absolutely helpless. There was nothing we could do apart from put all of our, our faith into 
the doctors and nurses that were treating him. And then, as I said, he had three blood transfusions total. And they kept doing tests and they kept coming back to us and said, look, we don't know what it is. We don't know what it is. We don't know what it is. So a few days into it, it was a week, they came back to us. And after these blood transfusions, he was getting a lot of his colour back, a lot of his colour back. They'd done some more tests and they came to us and said, look, he's improving a hell of a lot. He's out of the woods. He's not in any danger at the moment. And we were like, oh, oh. it was, again, another relief, uh, another relief. It was just ridiculous. And my wife went when they said to us again, she got upset and went into another room because in front of Josh, we could not show any kind of signs of being scared. The one thing with my kids, I always say to them, if anyone's ill or, or anything, something happens, I tell them, when do you look worried? When should you worry? And they respond back to me, when you look worried, dad. And that's what we've always said. When I look worried, then you need to worry. So in front of the kids, there's never any worry. The face is very much a poker face of everything is fine. And that's what it had to be in front of Josh at this time, which we did. So we were there in hospital for another 10 days in total. And then we got released as an outpatient. And Josh was at a kind of out of the woods. And we, we'd planned a holiday to Tynmouth. And... We said we'd cancel it. And the dog said, look, no, don't cancel it. You can still go. We'll notify the hospital down there that you're there. And if you go in, that what to expect. But we need you back in four days to give him a checkup. So we were meant to be there for 10 days. Four days in, me and my wife drove back up with Josh. We'd left Isabel with our in-laws who were on holiday with us as well. So we drove back up and for a check. And they said, look, his white cell count is a bit low, but nothing that we worried about. They said, look, you can go back on your holiday. We did. And we were an outpatient with Josh for, it was three years. We were an outpatient. We had to go and in on a regular basis for them to check him. And it wasn't until he was an outpatient that it is completely signed off that we could then relax. We did again. I usually did was when we got back home and we knew he was out of danger and safe. I, I kind of broke down again. Both me and my wife did. We kind of just held each other and um, crying. We got it out of our system. But it wasn't until he was completely signed out as, a, as an outpatient done that we could finally relax. But that was it. That was done. Both kids are very healthy. Both kids are doing absolutely fine. And it's great. So at this point, all the people in Paul's family are well. And then not so it was about a year later 2015 i was starting to feel really really tired all the time i could literally sleep anywhere if i'd sat down on the sofa within five minutes i'd be asleep i could sleep anywhere and i was had really chronic fatigue i was really always tired no matter how early i'd go to bed i was always tired i was getting pained in my in my back and my side so then I went to the GP the GP wasn't too sure what it was so they referred me to the hospital and the hospital did a couple of scans and they came back and said we've done some blood tests and everything so you've got chronic kidney disease and I was like what I was quite shocked and, and the consultant said to me says yeah yeah you've got very very kind of blase said yeah you've got chronic kidney disease your creatinine levels are very high and I went, I said, what, the stuff that you take as a supplement? He says, no, no, it's to do with your creatine levels. He says, it's to do with your kidneys. He says, the way your kidneys clean your blood. I was like, okay. So he was explaining different things to me. He says, it could explain why you've been tired. He says, it could be potentially stress. He says, have you had a lot of stress recently? And I said to him, I said, where do I begin? And it was a little bit of a shock. And I said to him, I said, is it anything that I've got to worry about? He says, is it something that's going to progress really badly? I says, have we got to prepare anything? He says, no, no, not at all. He says, it's a condition you'll have to live with. He said, don't smoke, don't drink too much. And I said to him, I said, well, I've got two kids drinking, fat chance. And we just had a bit of a chat. I was an outpatient with a consultant for the next four years. 
so I've had to keep going to the hospital for blood tests. So they check all my levels. Now I'm looked after by the GP. So they continue. So to monitor, to see if it, if it gets any worse, it hasn't affected my life massively, but it's always something there in the back of my mind that I've got to be conscious about. So if it gets any worse, I've got to make steps to reduce, lessen the effects. But it's now something that I kind of live with. It's not imminently going to kill me. I said to my wife, I still got at least a few years left. I said, look, if something does happen to me, I said, at least you've got the insurance money. I said, but if it does happen to me, I'm going to leave a letter telling them to look at you first. I think that we could all agree that Paul and his family have been through a lot. But during all of this, he needed to keep working, showing up and building websites. Faced with this same set of circumstances, I don't know how I would have coped. So I asked Paul what it was that he did to press forward. When it happened with my daughter, I was employed at that time. The employers at the time gave me compassionate leave. Nobody would not give you compassionate leave. If you are, if you listen to this and you are employed and you're worried about your job, about needing to extend leave because something major happens, most employers are very sympathetic to your situation. When you're self-employed, that's it. If you don't work, you don't earn. With my son, at the time, I had about eight projects on the go. And these varied in size and, and levels from two grand to, I think, nine in various different forms. Most of the clients at that point that I told said, absolutely fine. One guy, one client said to me, Paul, why are you even phoning me now? He said, get off the phone. Don't call me until your family are safe. Don't even think about picking up the phone. He says, in fact, unless they're safe, I'm not going to answer your call. He said, it's just a website. He says, no one's going to die. That teared me up a bit, actually. There were two clients who weren't so sympathetic and says, well, we want a refund and we're taking our business elsewhere. So there was nothing I could do about that. So I issued a refund. They went elsewhere. And at that point in time, my mind was just not in the game. And it was nice that the majority of the clients said, yeah, do you know what? Don't worry about it. Just let us know when your family's okay. When I knew my son was kind of safe out of the woods, I did phone the clients up, phone this guy. And the first thing he says, he says, Paul, why are you phoning me? He says, well, my son's out of the woods. I says, is everything completely sorted? He says, well, not fully. He said, look, just get off the phone. I don't want to speak to you. Yeah, it was lovely. Paul seems to have been able to get through all of this with a remarkable degree of composure and positivity. It's like the old phrase about the glass being half full. I wondered if this positivity was something that he recognised in himself. I've never thought about it, to be honest. I've always been someone that likes to dream big and likes to think big. And I get excited about stuff still. If I look at it, yeah, for me, I think my glass is always half full. And always, I always think it could be worse. I'm so lucky that it hasn't got worse. But the secret weapon behind all of this, though, is I don't think I could have done any of it without my wife. My wife has been there for me and with me every single step of the way. and We've been there for each other because I could go to some dark places. I really can. I can go to some dark places in my mind and she knows how to pull me out. And it's always good to have someone there that's going to back you, whether it's your wife, your husband, your partner, a friend, even a stranger, anyone. So long as you've got someone there that can pull you out of the darkness. There's always those chinks in your armour where something gets through. And it's not a bad thing that it gets through. It's not. It's all about how you deal with it and who you ask for help and how you get help. Um, you should never try if you can't go through things on your own. You should never try and do it. You know the old saying, a problem shared is a problem halved. And it is absolutely true. You've got to have someone someone there that you can upload onto, someone who will give you solid advice, someone who has your best interests at heart. And that's what I've got with my wife. And I tell her this every day, that I love her. I do. From the bottom of my soul, love my wife completely. 
I don't think she, well, she knows I tell her, but I don't think she knows how much. One of the purposes of the Press Forward podcast is to lift the lid on topics that don't get talked about often enough. To allow people to share their stories so that other people might listen. And by listening, they may gain an understanding that they're not alone. There are other people out there who have faced the same situations that you are facing. They have found a way through and can offer support to you on your journey. Maybe that person's already in your life, but they might not be. And that's what WPNUP is here for, to connect you with the support that you need. And so, if you are able to, please help us so that we can continue to support the WordPress community. Please donate at wpnop.org forward slash donate. That's it for this week. Please let us know if you're enjoying the podcast, if you're finding it useful or helpful. You can reach out to us at wpnop.org forward slash contact. There's a serious point to all of this though, and that is that WPNOP is here to provide help and support. That help is available for you or the people that you know, and it can easily be accessed at the wpnop.org website. Please spread the word about this podcast, tell your friends, and subscribe on your favourite podcast player. And remember that together we can... Hashtag press forward. <laughs> <laughs>